everybody to the Med Student Over Easy podcast. So to give you a little bit of background, this is the first one of the series. This was an idea thought up by a good friend of the show, Caitlin Bowers, who is now the editor-in-chief of the Med Student Over Easy series, where we wanted to tackle questions specific to medical students in the age of 2022. So over the next couple months, you're going to hear multiple voices from around the country, experts that are clerkship directors, associate program directors, faculty at medical schools, and at residency programs, taking us through very specific conversations that affect medical students. So to kick it off, we're going to have four DOs talk about the osteopathic applicant. So take a listen, and we hope you check in for the rest of the series. All right, so today we're going to talk about the osteopathic applicant, how being an osteopathic applicant can be a little bit different than an MD applicant when it comes to applying to residency. So I think there's worth putting some disclosures before we do this and maybe give the, the group some setup. So I think everybody on this call is a DO, unless if I forgot how to spell. Patricia's our, new, our newly minted DO, graduating in 2022. John's our statesman, having graduated in 2008. Caitlin and I fall somewhere in the middle there. But we're all DOs. Caitlin works at an osteopathic medical school on top of her clinical work. And John and I both work at residency programs. Everybody on this call has done residency or will do residency, which is a traditional AOA program that transitioned to ACGME in 2016. So I think that's all of our disclaimers out there. So you know that like we are very pro-DO. We want this to be a really good conversation. And Patricia's made an awesome outline we're going to work through. I think to even clarify further, we're very pro-medical student, but we recognize that the DO approach and medical system is just younger than our MD colleagues. They have a lot more experience and some institutional things that can be challenges. So I'm super excited about this. Yeah. And I know as a student at a DO school, when I was going through the match, they they're two years ahead of me, had gone through the first merged match, like totally ACGME match. So I had started out medical school learning about, okay, there's an AOA match and there's another. So, and then it kind of became, okay, no, there's one match, which was a little bit daunting and scary for DOs because I think people were worried about where do we fall into that. Uh, fortunately, I think that DOs have done very well in the combined match. What I really want to talk about is what we can do as DOs to be successful in the match when we are trying to apply. So one of the things that I know, something that I think helped me be successful was to get involved in the specialty that I was interested in as early as I could. I sought out research opportunities in emergency medicine very early on, even as a first year med student, because I think that that kind of opens up the door to a lot of other things, like finding a mentor and really that mentor really knows the process um, even better than you do and can give you the right advice and kind of set you on the right path. I think that from an osteopathic standpoint, since a lot of the medical schools are not linked to a specific institution and most osteopathic students pick a core site to do their third and fourth year and it's not like the entire class is doing it at a big tertiary care center. I think that that opens osteopathic students up to um, seeing different practices of the emergency department, but also getting different mentors and being able to market themselves a little better. I think that osteopathic students have the opportunity to do more away rotations, to do kind of more elective rotations. And there's a little bit more ability to branch out, I think, because it's not as structured. 
And I think that that can really work to your advantage if you have a mentor that helps you with the strategy and figuring out how to market yourself best for residency. And I think that we all were lucky enough to have strong mentors, which is why we're kind of all friends and are now giving back to other students. Yeah, I love that you guys both bring up the idea that the other thing that's important is an osteopathic medical student, there are some advantages in that when I advise students now, they have the benefit of getting two away rotations, where currently the recommendation is to do a home and an away. And because they don't have a home, they get the benefit of getting that second sub-I or second elective. But I think the downside is, is I think that I heard both Patricia and Caitlin uh, say it, and it's that your medical school may not be the best resource for you. The biggest downside I saw when I applied, and I see now as I meet with osteopathic medical students when they rotate at my hospital, is that osteopathic institutions are founded in the premise of graduating their medical students into the fields of primary care. And although everybody here would agree EM has a role there, it's not part of their checklist of things that they can count to get them to primary care. So that maybe leads them to not giving you the best advice. You get some advice, but maybe not the best advice. And so it's knowing where do I go find that? And so Patricia, you brought up finding a mentor early. You talked about getting involved in EM early. And I think if you know you want to do EM at all as a medical student, first year, second year, third year, as soon as you know, you got to be all in and going and finding opportunities to get involved because that's going to help you as an osteopathic applicant get maybe a leg up on your classmates. Like you said, a lot of osteopathic schools are set in more of a community setting or a rural setting. And while there's great emergency medicine physicians in those places that you get a lot of one-on-one experience with, which really helps students, I don't think they're necessarily in all settings as up-to-date on match advice and the current situation, because like Patricia mentioned earlier, it used to be two separate matches. There was a lot of changes that have happened. And because of that, you really need a mentor that's either in some way associated with a program or someone that is very in tune with the current process. And I think that's where some students maybe go wrong. Yeah, I think it's also worth talking a little bit about when we say getting involved with EM, what does that mean to you? So if I was to make the statement, if the second you decide you want to do emergency medicine, you need to get involved with emergency medicine, what does that mean? I think to me, the thing is to find someone that can kind of lead you, whether that's going to a conference and introducing yourself to people, and maybe that's how you find an away rotation or a research opportunity or you know something to do in the summer between your first and second year, depending on what stage of the process you're in. Or if you're later in the game, you're going to a residency fair. But if you don't have the ability to go to whether it's a regional, local, national conference, then finding someone in your area is probably the best way to start. Yeah. And I would say, too, don't overlook resident mentors. When we talk about physicians, everybody's head kind of automatically jumps to the attending physicians. But but honestly regardless of their level, a resident emergency physician can be a great resource because they are going to be the closest to you at that time of knowing what the challenges are and were within their own realm. And certainly, you know, even emeritus professors that have graduated and moved on and are done with their tenure can provide you with some really realistic life goal and really helpful mentorship. But as things have changed, right, when people talk to me about my experience in my personal case, right? Because when I applied, there were two different matches. And so you had to play a different set of game than you do when there's a single match. 
And to your points earlier, I think both Andy and Caitlin had a really good point about your medical schools. Medical schools want to help. They are vested in you actually getting in somewhere. But the integrated match is still relatively new for a lot of them as well. And so some of the typical advice that they gave, although helpful then, probably isn't as helpful now. So it's not that you shouldn't seek that advice. It's just you have to weigh it in totality with the other advice you get. But I know I started mentoring people. I thought it was important as a resident. Some of my very best friends have kind of come up along that way because you start early and form those bonds early on. Two things kind of going off of what John said. One is that I think that people also forget about the new incoming interns. You can get a lot of good advice from the class that just graduated above you because they kind of know what away rotations your school already has contacts with, how things have worked from scheduling standpoints, and they can help you make connections with other grads from your school. And then the other thing is all medical schools want to help you, but EM is very different than a lot of other specialties when it comes to applying. We have SLOWs, the standardized letters, which is not super common for other programs. We have a lot of guidelines that come from CORD, which is an organization that helps lead everything from a residency standpoint. And a lot of other colleges aren't necessarily as boisterous about getting people all on the same page and giving these recommendations, which can be confusing to some of the medical schools that not every specialty has that, especially when it came to COVID restrictions and recommendations. EM is very progressive. They do a lot of things virtually, podcasting, foam med, a lot of that other programs just aren't used to. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up resources like Cord and even Emra was really helpful for me, even just to go read what they have and then kind of put that together with what my mentor was saying and to get some good advice. I think one of the questions that we ask ourselves a lot as EM applicants is we're required to take Comlex level one and two, but what are your thoughts on taking step one and two or not? I think that's a big question that a lot of DO med students have. So from an advising standpoint, I advise all of my students to take step unless they are concerned that they won't pass, especially now that it's pass fail. I'm actually doing research looking at step scores and osteopathic candidates and seeing if they help or hurt you when it comes to matching. The preliminary data has shown us that even if you did poorly on step, like below average, but you still passed, that you still had a higher match rate than those that didn't take it. Obviously, we don't have all of the data back yet, and that's very preliminary. Um, but now that it's pass-fail, I think it just opens up a lot more doors for you, depending on where in the country you want to go. So my, I personally recommend that everyone takes it unless there's a very large financial reason or you'd think that you won't pass. John and I both have strong feelings on this, but I want to hear John's first. Yeah. So obviously there's lots of ways to approach it. I absolutely respect Caitlin's opinion on it. I just happen to have a different one. And she's heard this before. First of all, if you're interested in applying to a place, the very first thing you should do is look at what their requirements are. And if they're very clear, they want you to take the USMLE, that is not the time to dig in and rage against the machine. If that's where you want to go to residency, you do the thing, right? So don't be silly. But I will say that in the big picture of things, I think that osteopathic medical school trains you and prepares you to take the COMLEX. And that's the required test. And that's what is needed 
for you to enter practice. And so I just think it's a huge disservice to the actual test itself, which has been statistically shown, proven to be equivalent, to cover the things you need to do. It just hurts my heart a little bit that we can't come up with a better way to let that move forward and be an equivalent test and recognize that osteopathic students have to take that and then just leave off the other nonsense. It's basically a $2,000 to $3,000 surcharge and studying in a different way. I do admit that my view on it has softened a little bit just with the pass-fail part because there is research to show that historically, if you pass one, you'll pass the other. The scores are generally pretty approximate unless there was some specific thing that happened that caused you to do poorly on one, like bad news that day or ill or nerves or whatever. But people generally tend to score about what they're going to score on it. So I still have individual heartburn with it and wish there was a bigger push to eliminate it. My personal approach, not what I would advise people, but my personal approach was if a program couldn't figure out how to interpret a score, they weren't smart enough to teach me what I needed to know to be a resident. And I've said that before. I continue to say it. I think any program director worth their salt should be able to look at an applicant and use that as their piece. I'm at a program that's osteopathically recognized. And obviously, we accept and encourage MD applicants. We want the very best people at our program. But when an MD applicant comes to me with a USMLE score, no complex score, it's not like, like, well, sorry, I can't figure it out. I figure out where you're at and we move on with our day. Yeah, I have to admit that I've said it on other podcasts. I think that DOs taking the USMLE is just a surcharge, like John said. It's the cost of doing business. So to me, I'm like John to where if they require it, I think you should question why you want to go there. And I know I say that as somebody who took USMLE step one, because my wife had a very specific place I applied to. And they, like John said, I went to their website and they said to be seriously considered, you had to take USMLE. So I took USMLE step one before it was pass fail. I think it really just comes down to you have to make a choice and then you have to deal with the ramifications of that choice. Because there are some programs that will not look at you if you don't have a, a USMLE. And so if your program list does not include any of those people, you're fine. But if of the places you know you want to go or states you want to practice and the programs require that, you have to decide, all right, so if I don't take it, I cannot be upset that the following do not recognize it. So I think it's a very personal decision and you have to have that conversation with you and the people that rely on this decision. It'll be very interesting to see what happens when they're both pass fail. 100%. So I'm, that's part of the reason where I'm doing some research to see afterwards and compare, because I think it will be interesting, because I do agree with John that it's unfortunate that you have to go through this. But from someone who's on the undergraduate medical education side, I think that a lot of first years, they don't know where they want to go to residency. They don't know who they're going to get married to. They don't know what family things are going to happen. And so I just like to leave doors open to make it so they're less stressed. And I do think we should bring up one topic that gets asked a lot about this. And I think we would all agree is do not go back and take it. If you're a third year and you suddenly have your heart set on some program, maybe take step two and try to get a really good number, but do not go back and take step one. Sounds like such a bad idea. So many people ask me this. And just a quick side note for, um, even though I disagree with it, I do applaud the schools that are upfront about it. Because I think a worse thing would be 
to not be clear about your expectations. So I applaud the schools that at least put it out there and just say it rather than the ones that say nothing, but secretly believe that. I mean, if you can't do the right thing, doing almost the right thing is the next best thing. So we've talked about steps. I know I get a ton of questions about auditions. What do you guys tell people and what's kind of the best way you think to go about that? Now with the new recommendations, I have pretty much been telling people that I would recommend doing two aways if you can, depending on your scenario, if you have a home program or not. And then I try to encourage people not to do two aways outreach programs because I do think that the few people I've had to help soap over the past couple of years have been because they found out they had a bad slow and those are really hard to overcome. So I try to convince people to, if at all possible, do one away rotation at what you would consider a very safe program for you somewhere you're excited about, but you feel like you realistically can get into. And then if there is a reach program you're really excited about, then do your second away there so you can go and try to make a statement and prove yourself. Because I think sometimes if you go to two really top-notch programs, it you might not get the most gleaming letter because there's a lot of pro- people there and a lot of people to impress. That's just my approach, though. So to piggyback a little bit onto that, I would say the first thing is when you talk about a reach program, what are you what are you reaching for, right? Are you just wanting a fancy name? Are you you wanting a program that's got reputation? Because I would implore you then to re-examine your individual motives, regardless of what type of applying student you are. But the second thing is recognizing that community programs that are academic programs as well are still very different than university academic programs. And part of it is looking at who you are and who you think you will want to become. And if you are strongly considering a community center to go work at, but you're trying to get a slow from a university center, you have to almost change in some ways. You know, we talk about code switching. You have to do some code switching there, right? Because there's going to be different emphasis on research and different emphasis on your activities that you're engaged in. And code switching is a term used in a lot of social science. But in this case, I'm just talking about you're behaving in a way that is not authentically you. And you're slow coming from one of those programs, whether you are more academically in, in like thinking more about a university setting and you try and get a letter from a community academic shop. Their slow may be spot on with you and it may indicate some downfalls that you have that really aren't downfalls. They're just disconnects, right? You know, doesn't have enough research experience or doesn't engage with the patients. A lot of the times those are just disconnects between what the typical resident at that site looks like in terms of what they do and what you as a potential applicant to that program, who's doing an audition rotation, what you look like. And there can be a real disconnect That's a fair assessment. The problem is that nobody's going to know that because all they get is the letter. That's a great way to say it. I love that you bring that up, John, because too many times I've read letters for osteopathic applicants from large university hospitals to where some of them have the angst of, we don't rank DOs very high. So that automatically affects their slow to where it's, 
they get a high pass, but they're in the bottom quarter. And that starts a problem in my brain to where how can they be a high passer honors, but then be in the bottom quarter. And it could just because that's a program that has never ranked a DO in the top 25%. So they assume that DO will end up in the bottom. And then vice versa to where also, if you're going to go to that kind of reach program that Caitlin talked about, maybe go to that program second. Don't have your first audition be at your reach. Because again, most MD applicants have a third year EM sub I, and then they go do a sub I like October, November of their fourth year to where if you're a a DO who hasn't had EM as a third year and you're going to audition in August, maybe have that be at a community-based program that's more DO friendly, who gets who you are and knows where you're coming from because your slow will look better versus going to the big university place. Because I've also read that letter where this was their first time in the emergency department. So we only give those people pass and we always put them on our lower third. So some programs have these rules that you don't know about until you go. And that can negatively affect where you end up on a rank list or even if you get picked up for an interview. Yeah, that's a lot of good points. And I think anytime you get a high score in a rotation and then it says that they're not ranking you highly, that's kind of like a mini red flag that goes up. And obviously you need to read the comments and figure out why. And I think we all are aware of some programs that We'll say, oh, well, they didn't do great on like the end of rotation exam, even though they're amazing clinically or their step scores or their complex or whatever it may be. So definitely finding a place that you feel like is more your style and you fit in can lead to very, very good letters, which is ultimately you really need one really good letter. If you feel like a program is going to write you a good letter, ask them to be honest about I'm really working hard. If you think I'm a worthy applicant, but could have done a lot better, can we talk about those things? Can you tell me what you would have put in my slow, what you would say about me so that I know where to focus and improve? I've had applicants that we ultimately didn't mesh with them, right? Either them or us or the between or whatever. And having that healthy conversation can honestly rebuild that perception that's there and even leave not having aced your rotation or gotten a slow, but having learned a lot, which is ultimately the goal if you can't get a good slow. I think we all also like people who can take constructive feedback and can apply it. So, I mean, I don't have as much trouble with someone who maybe has a mediocre slow and then the next rotation they go on, they get this outstanding and you can tell from reading the comments that they clearly have taken the feedback from the first rotation and have brought it to heart to the second rotation. And I think that shows a lot about a person, which is what programs are looking for. So if you do feel like you don't maybe mesh well at your first rotation, getting that good feedback to help you for the second one can really turn things around. I think something that I'm hearing all of you say is when you're applying as a DO applicant, you want to be both self-aware and realistic and aware of where you're going. I know John mentioned like looking at the website and that was definitely something that I did for a lot of places, kind of looking to see, okay, like do these programs have DOs in past classes because if they end in their leadership, if they'd never matched a DO before, I kind of thought, okay, maybe that's not where I want to go. Or maybe I don't want to apply there because maybe there's something I don't know, kind of like John was saying, where maybe there is a rule that they have that they don't post on their website all over the place about DOs. And it's a fair question to ask, by the way, when you're reaching out to a program. If you notice that they don't have any DOs on faculty or residents or recent grads, ask. There are some programs that love DO applicants. They just don't get many because of their geographic location or a university affiliate. So it's not always that a program is bad. 
in the sense of they don't hire or recruit DOs. Sometimes it's just not where they get the bulk of their their student interest from. And so after a while, if you keep knocking on that door, nobody's answering, you tend to just go back to what's working for you. So it's a fair question to ask. Yeah, I think we've gone away from auditions and now to selecting programs is you need to be cognizant of how competitive you are. And I know that's hard to do in the micro of you only know what your CV looks like, but it's worth mentioning that if you're not a top tier board person, so the national average for Comlex is 500, I think it's now 525 last year is what they said it was, but above 500, if you're below that, you probably shouldn't apply to 25 university programs. You should be looking at more community type programs and then look for other ways to change your CV to where, you know, my boards are not awesome. I need to go out and have some publications. So I need to get involved with EM resident. I need to get involved, reach out to a podcast or a blog that takes submissions. I need to network. I need to find somebody who can be in a room at a program and say, look, I get it. There are some things on their application that are not great, but I know them personally and I can vouch for them. And so you just have to know how competitive you are. Because if you're not competitive, you also need to put that in the balance sheet of maybe I either need to lower my expectations or be ready for a soap if there's even a soap available. Yeah, I've struggled with this because I work for a medical school. So my ultimate goal from my employer is to make sure everyone matches. Obviously, I want people to not over apply or over interview. I want to go along with the specialties recommendations as well. But something that I found helpful is looking at the court advising guide. They give different breakdowns based on your resume and your activities and your board scores. And then they mention how many programs they would recommend you apply to. And I tell students that that number is how many realistic programs, not programs that have matched one DO in 20 years or your board scores don't really qualify you for. And a lot of students apply to 30, 40, whatever that number is of realistic programs. And then I tell them whatever you want to add on top of that is, you know, it's your money. You've worked this hard to get here. If you want to try to throw some programs out there, do whatever you think. And I will say lately with COVID and how much people can network online and through virtual things, I've been very surprised at how well osteopathic students have have done. And I've been very shocked at what I would consider middle of the road candidates that I had very long, realistic expectations with and where they ended up at the end was quite amazing to me. So it can be done if you're strategic about it. Well, and I think that speaks to the numbers that if you actually look at the match rates of osteopathic applicants in EM, it has gone up every year for the last 15 years. Like the number of DOs who are matching across the board in EM continues to increase. And so it's not an uphill battle. You just have to know where to pick and choose and where to apply and just be realistic. Yeah. And I think to Andy's point about being self-aware, it can be hard. You generally, if you kind of sit in the still of your room and rest for a minute and think about other people you've worked with and seen, most people kind of know if they're a highly competitive applicant, kind of middle of the road, or if they've got some struggles. But that is one of those great things about going to conferences and things like that, like going to ACOP and ASAP and EMRA. And your local, like your state conferences, right? Or if you have a regional conference, if you can't even make it to the national conference, these regional events, the nice thing about those are you can meet people who maybe they're not going to be like lifetime, lifelong mentors. And mentors are like, you go through seasons with them, right? Sometimes they just kind of help you do a thing and then you don't really need them anymore. And it's great that they were there when they were, but you don't really need them to move forward. 
And there are structured mentor programs that are offered through ASEP, ACOEP, different organizations. I will say that the osteopathic community has a very strong history of mentorship. And if you reach out specifically asking for help with, with something, you will likely get a lot of response. Um, but the nice thing about that is you can get kind of that disinterested third party assessment of where you're at. I mean, people have reached out to me that have no interest in coming to my program, and I don't really have interest in them coming to my program. But they have a straight up question like, how am I doing as a medical student? If you compare me to other third year, fourth year, second year people that are interested in emergency medicine, can you just tell me what you see, right? And it's actually nice to be able to help people out with that and not really feel the pressure of like, oh, they're trying to get into my program or whatever it is. This is just authentically a mentee, a future colleague that is looking for some guidance. And you can really do people a favor by when they ask for that honest feedback. I mean, you don't have to be a dream crusher to be a reality maker. All kinds of people get into emergency medicine that didn't think, to Caitlin's point, that we're middle of the road or not the best applicants or whatever. But you do need to have some realistic expectation of if it's probably not going to happen, I think one of the worst things we can do is keep stringing people along as if it's going to, because they deserve and need to have a backup plan. And that's where I think sometimes when you're a little too close to people, your hope can interfere with the reality. And so giving them off to another person to objectively just look at it can really help you out. I know that Caitlin, Andy, myself have all done this hey, I've got this applicant's CV or this medical student who's interested in this, and they're, but I'm a little too close, right? I've worked with them a little too much. And you just send it. And then you get that objective feedback that is dispassionate. It can really help you, even if you as the mentor then just use that to deliver back. The osteopathic EM world is also really small. We all pretty much know each other, especially people who do a lot of national work or networking so if you do reach out to someone to get some advice and there's a specific program or person, there's a good chance that they can help hook you up with that person, which can be very helpful as well. You don't have to feel like you need to know, you know, go to that specific program to get a mentor there. Other people can introduce you along the way. All right. This has been an awesome conversation. And obviously we could talk about this forever, but if there was one takeaway that you wanted to tell an osteopathic medical student applying to residency, what would it be? I'll jump on the grenade first. What I would say is this, don't go into the application and trial process thinking of yourself as a DO applicant with tons of challenges. Think of yourself as an applicant who has different things because MD applicants have got their own struggles too. Everybody's got their thing. So don't put yourself into a box in your own brain, but be realistic about the things that are going on around you. Just don't shut your eyes. Keep thinking about what it is you want, but recognize when there's an area of weakness and then make utilization of the fact, as we've all mentioned, that DOs work really hard to support each other and then take advantage of that because there are people there that can help you with those things that can be an incredible resource. So that would be my thing. Be focused, but be realistic. 
Yeah, I think to, to second some of those points is find a mentor early. We have a very small knit community. We love successes of fellow DOs. I mean, everybody on this call, anybody met MD, DO, for medical grad, whatever acronym is behind your name, we want you to succeed. And so know that there are people in in your in the community of emergency medicine that want to see DOs to continue to succeed and help the specialty grow. So find somebody who can help you do that. And I think just know that the work is worth doing. There are programs that I'm sure if you were to look at on paper, I can't go there. You can go there. You just have to go there with the right information, the right push, and some little additions to your application that are easily done if you get the right information from a good mentor or at least somebody who can plug you in. So just find somebody. And just to add something a little different, I would say just be confident. Don't sell yourself short and go where you want to go or your family wants to go. Don't compare places with your colleagues because everyone has different priorities and fits in different places. And that's why the match works. So go where you think is best for you, not based off of a name or anything else. Well, this is a great conversation. Thank you all for contributing. Well, thank you for making it all the way to the end of the first episode of the Med Student Over Easy series. I'm your host, Andy Little, and do not forget this series is produced in part by EM Over Easy and our official sponsor, the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. If you're a medical student, check out their resident student organization by visiting acuap.org today and search under members. So until next time, have a good one.